0: Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the art, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice, with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest this week is Harla Sabit. Harla was the most senior Egyptian woman in the multinational oil and gas giant Shell in Egypt before changing her life to become a fine artist. Now Harla works with nature and Islamic geometry, embracing the universe as a mathematical language throughout her art. Drawing on her Egyptian roots, Harla expresses the universe through sculpture and painting, which includes the magic and mystery of alchemy. She has been selected by the Royal British Society of Sculptors and for the International Art Fair in Egypt, where she has just had a large solo exhibition. Once again, she rises, be it business or art. Hello, Harla, and a very, very warm welcome. Hello. And a big welcome because you literally are only just back from a really hectic schedule with your exhibition. So thank you again for making the time. Oh, my pleasure. So, Harla, I wondered if we could go straight to that life-changing point in your life. When you decided to leave Shell, Um, just what were the circumstances, perhaps, that led up to that, that made you decide you were going to make such a distinct change of direction in your life?
1: Well, it was like, I wouldn't ever call it the middle-life crisis. I think it was a middle-life saver. Um it was art has always been inside me and I've always done it as a hobby but then at some point um I felt what's next and when you join a corporate company and you thankfully I was very successful and making good money then you start asking yourself is that what I want to do all my life and and the answer was no it's not about achieving just in the business and it's not just about acquiring more money, but it's also about fulfilling your own interests and, and doing what you really love and be passionate about. So I was approaching my 40 uh, and I decided, okay, 40 will be, and that, that was like two years beforehand. I said, 40 will be a cutoff point where I say, I'm retiring early from the corporate, busy rat race life and I want to pursue my happiness. And um, I decided to do that. Obviously, at the time, everybody was against the the, uh, the decision. And, and, well, I mean, yeah. And I said, be it. I, I feel so strongly about it, and I'm going to do it. And that is 20 years ago now. I never looked back. And I wanted to understand. I mean, I I had such a love for art, but I felt it wasn't just a hobby. It needed to be more grounded and more. Um, understood so I decided to um, although I had my degrees earlier uh, a BA honours in economics and a master's in in mass communication I decided no I want to understand art in an academic way as well so I went and did my um, honours degree in fine art uh, followed by my master in fine art
0: so what would you say helped you commit to such a distinct change especially when there are so many people who even if they think it's in your best interest will advise against taking any kind of risk or what you might be losing or what you might be sacrificing what do you think powered you on to commit to the change that you wanted to make? I
1: think it was the inner call, the inner feeling that It is art what I want to do for the rest of my life. I think we come to points in our lives where we ask the question, should I just carry on doing what I'm doing? Or should I change my path, which I believe would bring me more happiness. And it was my inner motivation more than anything else. I don't think it was any outer motivation on the contrary, The family, the friends, everybody thought I was crazy. I was the most senior Egyptian in the company and woman and in the management team, and 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 I had all authority and, I would say, power to a great extent that anyone would dream to have an achievement, but then it wasn't fulfilling enough. And I think you always have to ask yourself the question, am I deeply happy or not? Which ties very much with your concept of curiosity. It's an inner curiosity. What is it that you're really interested in and passionate about? And I knew it was art in its general form that I wanted to um, to do for the rest of my life.
0: It's really interesting how that need for expression or even mm-hmm. the need just to be curious so that yes. you can explore, you know, your artistic interests. Um, it's interesting how it suddenly emerges as, as though it's something that's been kind of pushed down in some way, but it gets to a point where it can't be ignored anymore. It sounds like that's the point you got to.
1: Yeah, it's like a volcano. It's always there, but there will be a point where it just whew, comes out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think it is that happiness, it's really interesting that you keep emphasising happiness, Why do you think it is that the pursuit of happiness almost has to become an act of bravery? It involves other sacrifices.
1: First of all, my firm belief is that happiness comes from within. If we are only going to wait for happiness to be provided to us, then it will never arrive. So if it comes from within and you know that going through this path will lead to it, it's not an easy path and why it needs bravery because probably you're taking risks and always many people always like to live on the safe side of 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 the road but it's high risk high reward they always say whether financially or or in life so sometimes you do need to take these risks to explore and find out whether this is the right path for you or not. And it's not just about being the right path or not, but is it the path that makes you happy? And I agree with you. I keep emphasising this. It's happiness that I was seeking um, rather than any other uh, measurable kind of so-called happiness.
0: And do you think that your business acumen, the resilience that you probably learned as a as a senior professional informed how you negotiated and managed that transition in, in terms of your pursuit as a fine artist. Is that where you think your resilience came from to help you commit to that direction?
1: Definitely. I mean, when I decided that this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to retire early, and I remember... Talking to my boss, the chairman of the company at the time and saying to him, I'm giving you two years notice. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, are you really serious? I said, yes, I've planned it in my head and now it's time to execute it. And and definitely it was, I mean, I must admit there was a bit of luck involved as well that um, I managed to secure financially a bit what is going to happen later, at least in the beginning of that new life, I would say. But yeah, I mean, back to your question. Yeah, I think I I knew what I was doing. I wasn't sure it was right, but I knew deep inside that it needed to be done.
0: Yeah, because I think most accounts of artists' lives, past and present, unless they're from very wealthy, privileged settings, the majority experience... A lot of insecurity and a lot of uncertainty have you ever felt particularly vulnerable once you yeah yeah
1: but i I just want to go back to that point you were mentioning about me and the career how did it really affect taking the decision in a way i always believe and i think this is i mean it's not my theory it's the theory of every um, management school management is about hard decisions Management is not just to sit and solve the normal problems, but it's about the challenges and and really solving the the challenging, difficult uh, problems. And I think this was one of them. It was like, I'm facing this decision internally, whether I go for it. And it was taking the decision that this is a difficult one, but I'm going to take it. And that's what all management is about, I guess.
0: Yeah. So it does seem like that you were already very well grounded um, and had that strong sense of resilience in terms of um, how you could meet risk, whether it's personally or professionally.
1: Yeah. Back to your vulnerability point. Yes, there were so many. I mean, in the beginning, it took me about a year and a half or so to overcome the feeling of guilt Gosh, I wake up in the morning, I should go to the office. I wake up in the morning and what's going to happen at the end of the month? So there were like, oh, but then they all became fallacies. They all became um, just ideas in our minds. They're not reality. And, and eventually I got over it. And, and I can't think that I would ever consider again, ever going back to um,
0: this kind of life. It's really interesting that you highlight guilt because it's not as though um, you've made a choice for bad reasons. You know, you've not harmed anybody, you know, but yet guilt creeps in and and for some even a sense of shame as if they've done something wrong. Do you think that that related to the change in culture that perhaps the business world is more visibly rewarded than the art world? And, and was, was was there a sense of guilt in terms of making that change?
1: Uh, there was partly that sense because obviously you're giving up a regular income where, with, with my kind of level at the time, it was quite high and, and that high level of security. And you, you're just diving into the unknown and not knowing whether you will ever be able to make a fraction of that money or not. But I guess it was a decision taken that I have to compromise certain things. And when I say compromise, not compromise it negatively, but actually compromise it positively. And you start asking yourself the question, what is it that's important? Is it having a bigger house and a bigger car? Or is it having a better um, way of expressing yourself? So things become so... um, different you start looking at life in a totally different way and you really become more honest with your real needs what they are and can you give up this whatever luxury you were having for the sake of pursuing your dreams or not and yeah the answer was definitely yes
0: and it sounds like you were very capable of recognizing you know, that voice of guilt that we all carry in our heads, a bit like the voice of doubt, you know, when we we lose confidence or um, we hold ourselves back Mm. just through doubt. But it sounds like you were very good at recognising that that's um, a voice that even though it invites itself in, you can also ask that voice to leave.
1: Yes, and I must admit what helped me in the process was um, which is another form of mindfulness, is uh, I write my diary and I write it for myself. I, I never think of anyone would ever even look at it. But in my diary, I discovered that I just automatic write without thinking. And when I go back to read what I've written, I can't recognize anything. I, ca- I can't even believe I wrote that. And there were some times where I felt a bit doubtful about my decision. And I went back afterwards to see what I was writing and it turned out that I was so sure of myself that <laughs> <laughs> on the outside it didn't look so, but actually I was really so sure of what I'm doing, which <laughs> was re- quite
0: assuring me. Yeah, it's really fascinating, isn't it, to be able to look back and it's very purposeful, isn't it, having those diaries of expression? Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of the research professor, Brené Brown. She became hugely successful through her TED talk, but she's immensely interesting the way she has researched and talks about things like vulnerability and courage and shame. Mm. And I just want to share an interesting quote Mm. um, to see what your response is. So, she describes vulnerability as our most accurate measurement of courage.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's almost like you're on a, how do you call it, like on a balance. It's, you're about to fall, which is where you are vulnerable, but actually not falling and realising that you might fall gives you the strength to hold yourself up. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, that does. And it's interesting, actually, because in your work, um, you make use of opposites, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. And that that seems to resonate there. Definitely. Um, Yeah. Perhaps you could talk about that, particularly from the listener's point of view, how you integrate the idea of opposites in your work.
1: Well, I mean, I'm always interested in something and its opposite, geometry and its organic form uh precariousness versus really stability um i would even say black and white it's just that that in between and i think it very much resonates with your vulnerability strengths kind of point of view the in between the opposite is where in my belief is where the truth is is where the reality is And I like to, I mean, when I'm making any kind of art, whether it's a painting or a sculpture, I'm treating the form as it comes. So there's a lot of chance given to it. And any accident is always welcome in my work. And then after allowing it to take all its um, accidental uh, go, I like to take control. And there comes then the, the, the other opposite of it. So by allowing the two to happen, the control on one side and the chance on the other side, and let them both kind of integrate together and blend together, you reach a new identity which has got the two elements of it. And in my, in my belief and in my art, that's the one. And it's, it's always the two together. It's not either or, it's allowing the two to work together.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because it's also really highlighting the importance of acceptance, isn't it? That, oh, yes. that both exist in whatever yeah. the opposites are, uh, rather than resisting, but accepting mm. a bit like accepting being vulnerable because it has its purpose, for example. Yep. Um, it seems that you're exploring um, a kind of harmony as well in terms of acknowledging both sides of an opposite.
1: Well, I mean, if you look at my artist statement, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm allowing the two together. Um, I mean, they, they supposedly should clash, but I'm allowing this clash to arrive at a harmonious point, and that's where I'm satisfied with the
0: work. It's interesting because on your homepage, the quote that arises from Galileo. I'll quote it now, says the universe is written in the language of mathematics and its characters are triangles, circles and other geometric figures. And I know that that quote can also go on to say without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Can you tell us about your choice in highlighting that particular quote? I guess
1: part of it was that I view the world in shapes. I view, well, I always like to go to the essence of, of anything. And when I was kind of reading into geometry, and, um, um, and I think it's in my statement as well, geometry, the word derives from geometry, which is the measurement of Earth and I was reading a book about art and geometry, and apparently the first time ever geometry was encountered, funnily enough, was in Egypt, where they were measuring the earth after the flood. So they divided the earth into rectangles and squares, and that's how the whole notion of geometry started. And it fascinated me, because I thought, so that's the origin. And what then how can I kind of translate this into my artwork? And I started thinking, actually, I can look at anything as a geometric shape and that could be the origin of it. And obviously, I don't want to say the the cliche and and the obvious that, yeah, you can turn a human figure into circles and and, uh, cylinders and what have you, but actually, you can turn anything into its geometric form and it will give you the essence of it. So um, I chose this, statement because I felt it really kind of takes me to the roots of life, not just of geometry or of art, but life. And, and I thought it was very appropriate to use it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because um, another comment I've seen um, on that particular quote um refers mm. to mathematics as the alphabet with which god has written the universe and mm. that struck me as though it was a kind of biblical coding mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and uh it made me wonder whether there's a sense of security by understanding the universe through a mathematical structure
1: yeah yeah there's a kind of grounding and 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 yeah, you you feel like there's a foundation. You're going into the, you're building a foundation, and that foundation being mathematical and geometric, it's kind of anchoring it in place. And um, I don't want to delve into Plato and Aristotle and what they talked about geometry, but the point is, you can understand a lot through thinking geometrically. And although it sounds a bit philosophical and a bit complicated, but actually it's not. It's just simplifying life and 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 things into shapes and putting them in a certain simple format that we all understand
0: it seems that you have a really clear yeah. vision and and response to this this idea of, of geometry and a, and a mathematical universe but at the same time you can embrace very happily the unknown and the in-betweens
1: yeah i mean the thing is if it, if i only rely on this measured Part which is the geometry, the mathematics, I can never create. I have to, as I mentioned earlier, I have to have the two together. I have to let the chance. I have to let the organic. Um, I cannot have a painting or a sculpture that is just hard-edged pieces. But I have to allow nature to come into it as well. And I always love it when things go wrong. I know it sounds funny, but I really love it when things go wrong because then I feel, ah, an upper power has taken charge here, and I like that. And I allow it to... And then it's, again, the blending and the merging of the two together that gives me the final piece that I'm happy with.
0: It's really interesting that you can say, I love it when things go wrong, because, of course, those are the times when most of us can feel very vulnerable because something's gone wrong. But... um you have a strong sense of welcoming that.
1: Yes, and acceptance. And I guess also belief, because testing it in, in, in an art form, I mean, although even in life, I would say, but we're, we're here talking about art. So testing it in the art form, I discovered that it's when I accepted the mistakes and when I, well, I say mistakes, but they turn out at the end not to be mistakes, actually solutions, but when I accept what I did not expect is when it works. And I find that it's a challenge that now I need to resolve. And I find that actually it's resolving itself naturally. Which again, back to the opposites.
0: Yeah, and the opposites, you, you, you know, your, your emphasis on, on embracing opposites is really important because it's a space of discovery, isn't it? If we disallow the possibility of something going wrong or not being what we expect, we're disallowing another creative discovery or an alternative discovery.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They always say thinking and feeling together is what really makes good art um and and i always believe in that it's not just thinking and measuring and 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 writing the right thing it's also feeling it and feeling is very much linked to vulnerability It's very much feel um linked to imagination is very much linked to the unknown because you, you feel it but you can't describe it properly and it's allowing this feeling to come out in whatever form expected or unexpected is what will lead you then to find what you're making is At least it's It's a good expression of yourself or not. Because at the end of the day, there is no right and wrong in art. It's how true you are to yourself. And this was one of the challenges that um, I, I kind of realized when I left Shell and I decided to do the art. And also it was at the same time a decision to come and live permanently in the UK. I'm changing my culture. I'm changing... The surrounding, and although I lived in the UK before, but this was like this another major decision, which was by the way at the same time of coming permanently and living in the UK. And a big question was, how can I be true to myself? Because I cannot just say, okay, I'll be making art that suits the UK. No, I make art that suits me, that is true to myself, and I cannot deny my background and cultural background and it was always a challenging one and it was also a vulnerable one actually but i i'm glad i stayed true to myself and i try as best as possible to stay true to myself and and my art would always express but again another two opposites it could be so it could be still the two cultures together because what i make may not necessarily be pure egyptian or pure british or pure whatever but it's, again, a mix of the surrounding and a mix of who I am.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's very clear mm-hmm. that that the Islamic geometry, you know, that's, that's such a core part of your work, is very true to your Egyptian roots. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, your Geo- geometry series, um, An Installation of Wood Structures, you describe... As depicting the genius of Islamic geometry. How do you describe or explain what that genius is?
1: I'll tell you in a very brief word. To start any of the patterns that you have seen around in mosques, in Alhambra, in different places, all Islamic geometry starts from two tools a compass and what they call a straight edge, not even calling it a ruler. All you need to do is draw a circle, and that circle can be any size, so there is no measurement whatsoever. Just draw a circle and start dividing it into segments. And from that division, you create the most beautiful patterns and and ornaments and what have you from just the simplicity, which again takes me back to uh, Galileo and what he said about the sim- simple shapes. It's only the circle and the line that is making all this. It's not the measurement of it. It's not how, how, um, uh, how long or how wide it is. It's how you've divided it and, and created these um, s- astonishing patterns out of it. And this is what really drew me to the Islamic Geometry. So, so I thought, well, actually, I would like to learn it. And and I went on different courses studying it in London. And the more you study it, the more you find it simple. But it's just allowing, again, the unknown. So allowing that what if I take the line that way? What if I divide the circle that way? And, and you end up with uh, marvellous results.
0: And, and what is the feeling when we're talking about thinking and feeling? What is the feeling that you have or or enjoy most when you have decided that a piece of work is finished?
1: before I answer that, I want to say that when when you're in the zone of creating art, it's almost like you're somewhere else. you're not really conscious hundred percent of what's going on around you so it's getting into this zone where your hand and mind are working together. And, and I, I remember doing a paper about that, where there is a neurological link between what you do with your hands and how the brain works. So because your hands are touching the work or touching something you, material you're materially working with, and your brain is thinking how you, you, you're uh, manipulating it, it's this interaction between the two that is creating at the end some piece of art. Now, when you're doing this, your brain is working, so that's the thinking side, but and your hands are moving and interacting, and that's tangible. There's a feel. So it's that feeling of the interaction with the materials, plus the thinking process going on. That both of us, when they or both of them, when they come together, they make the art. That's my own theory. And that's how I think it works for me, at least.
0: and And then, do you have mm-hmm. um a feeling of joy or happiness or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But <laughs> <Aesthetic. laughs>
1: I'll tell you an example, which actually is today more than any other day. I've just finished, as you mentioned earlier, a huge solo exhibition in egypt, and um, and I feel internally that I want to explore a new direction in painting and for some reason I feel I just want to go back to basics of abstract art and at the today in particular I said okay now what is it that I'm going to be doing is it just listening to my feelings and then part of me said yes but also you've got to have some know-how or some knowledge of what you want to do and it was a typical example of the mind is thinking but the feeling wants to come out and I think I've reached a stage probably by the end of the day where I've tried to put the two together and try to create some abstract art that I want to do.
0: That's interesting so, yeah. because you're you're very open aren't you to elements of chance. Oh yeah. And I think that came out in the gravity series. Yes. Um there's a story behind the gravity well Well, do share it because and also just to give the listeners some context it, it was almost like a scientific exploration but I'll let you share the story behind it
1: well gravity was at the time my husband had a heart attack and he went to hospital and obviously I was devastated and I didn't know what to do and I wasn't allowed all the time in the hospital. But after he had an open heart surgery, which was really major, and he had complications and a stroke in his eye, and, 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 he was in bed and the doctor came and he said to him, I'm really not feeling well. And the doctor looked at him and said to him, once you stand up, gravity will take over, will take over. And that was like a light bulb for me. I said, oh, yeah, gravity takes over. So I went back home that day and I took out the paints and I started pouring them and let gravity make the painting for me. And it was so interesting because when I let the gravity do it, by tilting, by moving the piece, by whatever, gravity is doing its action. And then it dried. And then I said, okay, that was chance, pure chance. Where is my control now coming in? So, the gravity series was starting with "Let Gravity take over," and then I go over the painting by saying, "Okay, this part is going to be this color, this part is going to be that," and it was again bringing the two together and a series of about twenty five paintings, I think were made in the gravity series based on that statement said by the doctor
0: I mean that is an absolutely lovely response, isn't it and interestingly. Perhaps quite a powerful coping mechanism for you at the time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I had to I always had three hours in the morning where I cannot go to hospital. And um these were the three hours where I go to the studio and I just pour my emotions into the paint. And I must admit it it sounds I know it sounds weird what I'm gonna say, but it was happy moments. Because I was really getting the negative stress out. And at the same time, colour always speaks to me and colour makes me happy. So it was like giving me the strength to help my husband in its hard times.
0: I mean, that's so Mm -hmm. significant. And, And perhaps you agree that that really does speak to the series question, can art save us or save us in terms of help us, help us to help ourselves. Would you think that is an example of how art really can save us in in ways that we may not always appreciate? Definitely.
1: These three hours every morning is what made me carry on and gave me, as I said, the strength to be with him. And it wasn't just during hospital time, but even when he came back, I mean, it was a huge open-heart surgery. And and I had to support 100%. And it was art that really saved me and gave me the strength to to do that. Not only then, but in many other times in my life where things were not going well and it was always art that saved me. I can't imagine I wouldn't be without my studio now. Whenever even I feel down for any reason, I just get into the studio and all of a sudden I look at my paintings on the wall and my sculptures and I smile as if nothing happened.
0: It's, It's so important because if we looked at it... Um, in a different way and said, imagine that you were deprived of a studio or even just the space or time, what on earth do you think would happen? How on earth do you think you would cope in those particular situations?
1: I guess I'll create art in my mind. I'm not going to give up. I mean, you never know. Things may happen that I'm not well to come to the studio, then i will use my my brain to imagine art and make it in my mind i it's it's there's this funny thing about me that i always believe make the best out of any situation so if i know i'm going to go to hospital and wait for hours to do something i'll just take with me a nice lovely art sketchbook that i can do something in it or read a book about it um so yeah but i agree obviously i'll, I'll feel deprived but then i'll try to find alternatives
0: It's interesting because um, one of your sculptures or or, or a series is called Mama's Chair. Yes. And obviously that is in relation to the fact that you sadly lost your mum to a terminal illness. So I wondered if how much you might want to talk about that and whether that was an act of therapy or an act of emotional courage or both.
1: Both. Well, her, well, the reason I called it mama's chair, because as you rightly say, mom was um, diagnosed with cancer uh, and we knew she's going to die in a few months time. And I was just towards the end, I was just sitting on a chair all the time, just trying to look after her and and, and comfort her. So it was always the chair that I felt was in common between me and what's going on in my life with her. So, when she died, I decided, okay, now i'm going to take the chair and cut it up and I started collecting few chairs that I started cutting them up and converting them to things that has to that have to do with her. She loved knitting, she loved weaving, she loved uh um, crochet, so what I did was I started converting parts of the chairs that I was cutting into weaving looms and weaving parts into it. Um, part of the installation was also um, when, in, in our tradition, when the person dies, you they're washed in a certain way, uh, which has got a lot of pharaonic um, influence in it. And they wrapped in linen, seven pieces of linen. And I did this, I insisted that I do this myself to my mom. And that wrapping her, which is a mummy, happens to be mama, mummy, So I was wrapping her as a mummy, and she was also a tourist guide, which also added to the pharaonic kind of influence to it. So that installation had a lot of mummies being wrapped um, in porcelain, as well as chairs that have been converted into looms, as well as chairs that were having knitted pieces coming out of their middle as if it's a womb and it's it's this um the cord. So it was an installation that really helped me go through my grief because I did it immediately after she died and I felt it was it was not something that should make me feel sad. On the contrary, I was so um I wouldn't say happy, but I was really so satisfied with what I was doing as an installation and it was like a, mem- a memory for her, what she loved and an and expression of how I felt and how I really grieved her.
0: Yeah, and it seems a really important relationship that more of us need to learn in terms of how grief can be helped through expression, whether that's artistic expression or, or perhaps another form of expression that's, that, that people prefer. But it really is an important relationship that I think a lot of us lack. There's not really an existing relationship with the idea of loss and grief and how we will therefore have that relationship
1: and you wouldn't know it until it happens. I mean, I, after my mother, a year and a half after I lost my brother, my only sibling. And grief is such a big word. Maybe one day I'm going to do an um, installation about it. But it's such a big word that doesn't have any rules, doesn't have the same rules, doesn't apply the same. Every, every, I mean, I thought grieving my mom was going to be the hardest thing on earth until my brother died and it was like a fraction of how I felt when he died so it's such a big unknown vulnerability at its best but back to your main theme art can really make you go through grief and make you through difficult times
0: big deal You've certainly described some absolutely huge events that are difficult. You know, your husband's open heart surgery, losing your mom, losing your brother. And that experience at the time where it's so crushing, you know, it's hard to navigate. And then later on, when you reflect back from a different place, is it a resilience? You th- Do you think that you've that you've? built or is it an acceptance
1: i think it's a belief in the strength and power of art and the mind and the soul it's knowing that you can persevere i mean cliche it's never the end of the world life will go on and life will go on with and you look back and you find that these problems just got smaller. They will never be bigger and bigger and bigger. Although loss cannot really be measured the same way. But still the the, the pain of the loss gets smaller. So always believing and, and I and I think that's my my motto in life persevere and always believe you can overcome it. But as you know, I'm an art lover. Let art really help you to, that, to do that. Mm. Believe that it will take you to a better place because it will take you to a better place.
0: One of the lovely places that you take us to, which is one of my personal favourites, is Nubia. Oh, yes. And it's just so gorgeously colourful. Perhaps you could... You know, give a kind of description for the for the listeners who haven't seen it, but it's gorgeously colorful and very uplifting, and I'm uh, and very happy.
1: Yeah, Nubia is a village in south of Egypt, um, part of Aswan. I would say for those who travel to Luxor and Aswan, it's it's in Aswan. Uh, it's along the Nile. It's a very very small village, and Nubians obviously were misplaced. I mean, they had to move. When, when they when the dam was built and um, although it's a sad story but the Nubians as such are such a lovely community they speak a language that no one can understand except them because it's not a written language it's only spoken no one who's not Nubian would understand it or learn it because they will not teach it to them um, yeah we visited three years ago Um, I visited before just like a few hour visit and yeah it was lovely but then I thought I really would like to go and and stay there for a bit so we went and stayed there for a week and I'm always interested again geometry and architecture so the architecture of the Nubian houses is very special and um, I read a lovely book about it and I thought oh now, now it's time to go you go there and you won't believe the colors that are used you not a single house has got the same color but it's not just like a color one color field but it's the drawing on each house the the and and interestingly it's the women actually that decorate them outside and inside and it's just you're in a you're it's almost like you're in heaven so we spent, and it's, as I said, it's a very primitive place. So it's not like a luxurious place you go and visit. No, it's extremely primitive. And the way they even do it is that somebody has been painting their house or their interiors, and there's this, a little bit of left paint um, in, in, in the tub. So the next door neighbor, oh, can I just use this for my stairs? And And they just all kind of share it. They always have open door policy. So... If you're passing by any nubian house you're more than welcome to go in and have a cup of tea Mm -hmm. whoever you are not just foreigners but just any kind of nationality or egyptians for that matter so it's a place where i found you have the people really wanting to welcome you without anything they don't need anything from you and they're just opening their arms and heart and house to you um I loved it, and I was so inspired not just by the um, buildings and the architecture of it, which I painted about forty paintings out of that. Um, and by the way, I can't stop doing it, so I keep going back. It's a subject that would never stop, probably. But the other thing, which was maybe uh, interesting to tell about, is I was never a figurative painting painter. I was always interested in the buildings and the architecture. But there was these three women that. Again, welcomed me uh, as I was walking with my husband. And they were oh, most smiling, happy women I have ever seen in my life. So when I came back with all this inspiration, I kind of said, oh, I owe it to them. I'll do a painting of them. And as I said, I'm not figurative and it wasn't about their faces. It was just their pose and how happy they were. So I put this painting in an exhibition and a professor of fine art came and said to me, why don't you do figurative? And I said, oh, no, 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 that's not me. She said, I think you should. You captured the soul. And that was the start of, I would say, another journey with painting people, faceless, but people, that has been for the last three years. And it was all because, again, of Nubia. So Nubia and... is, is a place, is a magical place. I would urge anyone who goes to Aswan and, and visit Egypt, I mean, to go there and visit them. It's a lovely place to stay as well. Lovely food, lovely people, lovely everything. Lovely life, I would say. Happy
0: life. It, it really sounds remarkable. It's such a unique place that's naturally full of art and colour. Yeah. And even to have its own language Mm. you know it's so unique Mm. how did that challenge communication so that you because they're so welcoming at the same time
1: well you will never understand what they're saying so if they want to say something in secret they just say it out loud and you would never be able to guess it or know it but it's it's I guess you reach a stage where you accept the difference in its real meaning because even if you are in any other multicultural place, you have a chance of understanding roughly what is being said. But you, you can't. You can't there. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just you are dealing with body language, although they speak perfect English and perfect Arabic. So it's not that they are not um, communicating, but it's between them that they communicate the um, the, the Nubian way.
0: Yeah. And was there any way of understanding um, the roots to that culture? Because it's so lovely, um, but perhaps unusual, that colour and art, you know, the, the decorative architecture with which they make their homes um, became the norm. I mean, sadly, I mean, if only, if only our inner cities were built the same way.
1: Yeah, I remember there is a, well, there is a very famous Egyptian architect called Hassan Fathy. He visited the Nuba in, I think it was in the 50s or 60s, and and here is an architect. He was fascinated by how they built their houses. Mind you, these houses are vernacular, so they're all built by local materials. They're not built in, in the, pro- I wouldn't say the proper, but they, they're not built according to architectural rules as such. Some of them are And also how they build. I was talking to one of the families, which was really interesting. And I said to her, I love your house. And they're all one one floor, more or less. I mean, some are two floors. And she said, oh, we acquired that piece of land. So we built a room. And then we had a little bit of money. So we bought the next few meters. And we built another room. So they kind of expand building a room by room. I wouldn't say a house on house. No, a room by room until they manage to have four or five rooms. And they will always have a room for visitors. And they call it the traveler's room. And I understand from a friend who happens to come from that part. uh, She was telling me that she as a Nubian would go to if she's visiting she doesn't live there anymore and if she's visiting nubia she can just knock on any door and ask to stay overnight and they will do that not because they know her or know her family just because she is a traveler
0: it's just incredible isn't it it's such a lovely open community uh, and a a very kind culture that we we don't see enough of do we no And so talking about heritage, um, Nubia's heritage, and and also the heritage of your your own family, and and we were talking about your mum earlier, do you reflect on any childhood wisdoms or examples or advice you were given, whether it was your mum or your grandparents, that have stayed with you, that have guided you throughout your life?
1: Yes, I think, I mean, I only... No knew a grandmother. All the other three um died before I was born or just after I was born. So I only had my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. She and mom had a lot of um, similar kind of traits and their character and that was perseverance. And one thing I've learned um from my mom and grandma was if you believe in something, do it. Don't listen to the others always. Listen to your heart. But persevere and my mom I mean I come from Egypt generally have got quite um, well different kind of traditions where you really worry about um, what people might, might say and uh, you're conscious of it and my mom was totally against that and, I, and and that's one thing I took from her she said you just need to believe in yourself don't let people affect your um opinions or your acts just because you're worried what they might think of you just do what you think is right as long as you're right
0: i mean what better advice you know what what fortunate advice for for any young person to hear that because it's so easy isn't it for the negative mind to just automatically make you think um Negatively, doubtfully, inhibit yourself. And actually, your advice was to throw those shackles aside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. At a time when it wasn't that easy to do that.
0: Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. you're the surrounding culture. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't open to that. Because, you know, mindfulness <laughs> certainly. Um, is encouraging us all to look at the shackles of our own minds that actually we can step back from what our automatic thoughts or habitual negative thinking and start to disallow those unwanted guests the the voice of shame or guilt or doubt Yeah.
1: yeah
0: is that something that you think you work on even now
1: not listening to others
0: know those voices of doubt or you know an- anything negative in your own mind do you think you work on that yourself even now
1: well I mean I'm such a positive person and I hate negativity to be honest and even the negative I consider positive because I know that I can turn it into positive but yeah I mean there are some times when you really doubt especially in art as an artist you there are lots of times when you really doubt what you're doing is good or not or is 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 right or wrong or what what people think about it i mean at the end of the day art is such um, uh, a thing that you expect others to judge and you you want to know how they feel about it or whether they like it or not but i've learned from time and experience that you will never create art that pleases everyone and you will never create art that will be liked by everyone So as long as you are true to yourself, and there are times when I was doing something and my surrounding family were kind of against it somehow, saying, oh, I don't think this is good. And I said, okay, well, I take your point, but I'll I'll carry on until the end. And when I finished it, they said, oh, actually, you saw something we didn't see. So, and even if they still, I mean, my husband still doesn't think that all my work is good enough, but be it, that's his taste although he's extremely supportive I'm not saying he's not but I'm just saying there will be times when people may have different views about your work but and even I have sometimes these doubts back to your question but at the end I, I kind of always question how I feel about it and I always believe in that thing where sleep over Have a night in between. (laughs) And I come in the morning and something I really hated, find that actually it's not really bad at all. Because when you're in it, you're almost like not seeing all of it. Sometimes you really need, and when I'm painting, I do a lot of that, where every half an hour or so, I just leave the easel, go to the house and do something, and then come back and see it with fresh eyes. So yeah, doubt does come to our minds a lot. But then perseverance is what keeps me going and understanding that be patient. It's not finished yet. Just let it finish and then see what comes out of it.
0: Yeah, and those spaces, whether it's 30 minutes between things that you're doing, whether it's the sleep on it overnight, those spaces are really important acts of mindfulness. You're allowing your your mind to have some space Yeah, in order for you to really be able to think about or review what you're doing rather than just powering on through. Yeah. I think space is probably very underestimated.
1: Oh, yes. John Cage could tell you that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's the space that creates the contrast. Even in an art form, it's the space, whether negative or a certain colour, that you have established in between two elements that really makes you see the two elements. If there wasn't that space, it would be just one thing.
0: Yeah, going back to the opposites. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, when you consider that you're really, an artist is in quite an exposed place, there's always going to be the judge, jury and critic, we have to be careful, don't we, that critics are also often in the least courageous space. Mm. It's very easy mm-hmm. to cast an opinion, but it's much harder to be in the ring.
1: Well, I think what is important is that you listen to the other opinion. Whether it's a critique or it's an, an, a negative comment or a positive one, for that matter, it's important to listen and to question. You think so? Why? And and not that I'm challenging it. No, I want to understand more because maybe there is a point of view that I didn't think about or that I can work on. So it's important to listen to the others and not shut them off because oh, I know what I'm doing, then I don't need it now. We do need critics. We do need others' opinions, whether for or against. But at the end of the day, I I keep saying this, just be true to what I'm doing, because I can't... I mean, I'll give you an example. Somebody the other day was telling me, we don't see you ever do flowers. Why don't you do flowers? And I thought, because I don't feel it's going to express... I mean, I say this. I'm not do flowers tomorrow, but I say I don't think it's going to express how I feel now, and it's not really what I'm, what what inspires me, because it has to be a trigger. I mean, like you mentioned, Nubia, Nubia, what well, was such a trigger? Well, I must have taken one thousand photographs there, and as I said earlier, I'll carry on doing with it, and and I'll carry being inspired by it, but. subject may not necessarily interest me or a color or something so yes I can listen to what others are saying but I have to digest it take it in think about it reflect and then come to a a point where I say okay this is what I want to do and this is how I feel about it and this is because if it doesn't inspire me I'm not going to be creating good art We said before, it's thinking and feeling. If I don't feel it, I'm not going to do it. The people I was painting in the last three years were all people I saw in the streets where something touched me and I felt them. So I took a photograph of them and then I worked on it. And it's so interesting. And they were all mostly in Egypt. But so interestingly that a lot of my friends and family started taking photographs of people and said, oh, I think you will like that. They're right. It's the kind of the right subject. But I said, but I didn't take the picture myself. I didn't feel them. And, and so I can't paint it. Not that it's a bad one. On the contrary, it's a beautiful one. National Geographic has got some wonderful photographs that I would love to paint. But it has to be true to me. I, I should have seen the person and felt him or her to be able to paint him or
0: her. Yeah, so it's yeah. the authenticity of your own experience yeah so harla unbelievably our hour has gone by wow (laughs) i know uh, it would be so easy to just keep talking um but at the beginning of the interview um i asked if we could go back to that point when you were making that decision to leave your shell career and pursue your fine art life If you were to talk to Harlan now, let's say she was in her shell office and it may be on a day that even though she'd made that decision, she was maybe feeling doubtful. What would you say?
1: Go for it. Go for it. it. I would say you should have gone for it earlier. But then there's always the right time. And this was the right time for me so no i never look back i never regretted it on the country uh, if time goes back i may have chosen an earlier time to start it, but then everything happened at the right time i
0: think don't let fear and doubt stop you
1: never
0: never Paula, it's been really really lovely to talk to you thank you so much again for making this time because i know you've been so busy in egypt with your fabulous exhibition
1: pleasure and I've really enjoyed it you took me through a journey inside me and I really enjoyed that thank you very much
0: I'm really pleased and I'll see you you. soon see you soon thank you Harla. thank you bye